In the second and third chapters of the Gospel according to St. Mark, there is a passage of Scripture entitled, Lord of the Sabbath. You may recall these words of the Scripture. It begins in the 23rd verse of the second chapter, which the writer said, One Sabbath Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing that which is unlawful on the Sabbath? And he answered, Have you ever read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is even is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time he went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? And they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Now there is in the midst of these verses one verse of scripture that I want to lift up for your consideration as we take a look at this particular phase of Jesus' life and his ministry. The writer says as he came into the temple and as he met the man with the withered hand and as he looked and listened to the rebellion of the people involved, the writer says, and he looked around and about upon them. These are the words to which I call your special attention this morning as we consider the life and ministry of Jesus Christ and our relationship to the Sabbath day as well as to the church. He looked around about upon them. One Christmas my wife and I were invited to go with a group of children on a shopping spree. There was a custom or tradition among the JCs in the city in which we were living at that time uh, that they would give the children, the underprivileged children of that town a certain amount of money and adults were invited to take a group of these children and go with them on a certain day just a few days before Christmas. Let the children go into the toy stores and any stores in which they wanted to go buy anything their money would buy seeing all of the things that were there to see and spending the money in any way they wanted to spend it. She was given five little girls and I was given five little boys. They had their amount of money in their pocket and we went on a shopping spree. We went into every toy store in that town. We looked at every toy imaginable. We saw all of the tributes that uh, uh, are accumulated prior to the Christmas season. 
And we watched with those little children as they surveyed the entirety of the city, of the town in which they lived, and all of the stores and all of the things they had. As you can well imagine, when the day was over and we reassembled with the other children to enjoy the Christmas party that was planned for them at the close of the day, we were greatly exhausted by the experience that we had encountered. And yet I must admit, I have never spent a more exhausting but enjoyable day in my life. And as I returned home that night, I suddenly realized I had seen the city through the eyes of a child in a way in which I had never been privileged to see the city before. Now in the words of our text, uh, the, the words of our scripture, the writer uh, shares a similar experience out of the life of Jesus in his relationship to the temple. Jesus came into the temple on that particular Sabbath day and he was basically concerned about one thing above everything else. He was concerned about healing a man with a withered hand. He thought how easily this could be done. It really wasn't difficult for him to see the need of the man. It wasn't difficult for him to call down the power of God and through the miraculous work of God's power, restore the withered hand until it would be rightfully used again. However, as he faced what seemed to be a rather simple experience, he discovered something more than he expected to discover in his understanding of human nature in relationship to the church. The writer said when Jesus entered the temple, he called the man out. Singled him out because he saw the hand and called him aside. But as he began to heal, as he began to work his miracle, he sensed some questions arising within the congregation. He knew the people were concerned because in the first place, he was violating what they considered to be one of the sacred laws of the Sabbath day. He was using the temple in a way in which the temple was not designed to be used. Uh, and he could sense some murmuring among the people, particularly the Pharisees, the good people of that day, and decided the time had come when he needed to uh, make an example and describe and share a lesson. So before he could perform his miracle, he had to deal not only with the needs of a withered hand, but he had to deal with the needs of a congregation and speak to the sins of an individual's life. He suddenly discovered that there was a sickness within the congregation which was even more destructive than that of the withered hand. The writer says, Jesus looked around and about upon them. And all of a sudden he discovered a view of the congregation, a view of, human, of humanity, a view of the temple, unlike anything he had ever discovered before. However, he also brought out of this a lesson for us in which we can see some of the things Jesus saw and realize for ourselves the message he sought to impart. Jesus began with a look of, for sincerity. 
when he walked into the congregation, he saw a man with a withered hand. He realized that here was a man who had come with a need. A man whose whole life expected, was expected to be changed as a result of his entering into the temple. And no doubt, this is the place where Jesus begins his search within our life. He wanted to find those who were sincerely in need those who were conscious of his ability to help. He wanted to find a person or people who had come with some desire within their heart and who were sincere in their attempts to discover an answer to the questions they had and to have the needs of their life met with the presence of God and the Spirit of Christ. And I suspect that this is the place where most of our Christian experience really begins. I suspect that this is the one thing uh, that lays the foundation upon which everything else is done. That many things are said, many things are missed, many things are lost, or many things are accomplished as a result of our sincerity. For wherever Jesus appears, uh, he looked for those who were sincere in their understanding of his message and in a desire for him to serve. So that Jesus begins a look at our life with a look for sincerity. There is a story out of the life of David Hume which illustrates so perfectly the idea. For those of you who are familiar with Hume realize that he was a man who was not religious by nature. In fact, he was more of an agnostic than anything else. And yet, Hume made it a custom every Sunday morning to go to the temple where there was a certain Scottish preacher and listen to what the man had to say. His philosophical friends were getting concerned about uh, this attitude and about the things he was doing. And so one day, a group of them came to him and said to him, we want, uh, we want you to tell us, why is it you go to that, certain, to that church every Sunday as you go? You don't really believe what that man has to say about religion, do you? You're not becoming religious uh, all of a sudden, are you? To which David Hume replied, no, I don't believe what he says, but he does. And once a week, I like to hear a man who believes what he says. And in a very real sense, here is the hallmark of Christianity and the Christian faith. The, the, the Christian experience begins with a note of sincerity in that we believe what Jesus says. We believe what he is. We believe in what he is. And we believe what he does. In second place, Jesus looks for, for surrender. For in essence, the only thing Jesus asked of the man with the withered hand was to surrender himself to his power. He didn't ask for him to go through any form of ritual. He didn't ask him to observe some of the rites or some of the customs or some of the traditions of the day and age in which he lived. The only thing Jesus asked was 
that he surrender himself to his power and let that power of God within his life work the miracle the man saw. Strangely enough, here is the only demand Jesus makes upon our life. The only thing he asks is a surrender of ourselves and of our will to the will of God. You'll remember it's illustrated most perfectly out of his own life and out of his own experience. When Jesus faced the most difficult moment of his life, when he was tried almost beyond his ability to endure, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he faced the agony of the cross of Calvary and the decision within his own soul as to what he was going to do and how he was going to, to face this particular moment. He dealt into the deepest reserves of his life to discover the one thing that ultimately would make a difference. And that was a complete surrender of himself to the will of God. And finally Jesus came to the place where he said, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And as I said, here is the only demand that Jesus places upon our life to discover the difference His Spirit makes within our life, to discover the difference His power makes with our weakness. What Jesus encountered that day was a group of people who were more concerned about the method than they were the message. They were concerned about Jesus observing the letter of the law and the temple being used for the purpose which it was intended. They were concerned that these customs and traditions of yesteryear that had been handed down from generation to generation would still be observed even in the day and age in which Jesus lived. And when Jesus began to break the customs, when he began to uh, disrupt or destroy some of the traditions, and they became greatly concerned about the way he was doing things. And yet this never really affected Jesus' life. The only thing that concerned him, and the only thing that concerns him in our life and in our experience, is a surrender of ourself and our will to his will and to his power. And to realize that the miraculous work of God, which has characterized the message of the Christian faith from generation to generation, is still available for us in the 20th century. In the church of today, you and me, in the world of in which we live, still receives the transforming power of God for the weakness of our life. Not through an observation of the methods, but through an understanding of the message. And the realization that the message of God imparted to the mind and mouth of Christ is the message of salvation 
and the message of restoration for the infirmities and the weaknesses of our own life. Some time ago I read a book by Dr. Elton Trueblood entitled The Future of Christianity. Those of you who are familiar with Elton Trueblood uh, know that he is a man of the 20th century who has probed the message of the church as deeply as any other individual I've ever known. He is a Quaker, but he is a greatly religious man. And he understands the message of Christianity uh, in a unique sort of way, and he sought to impart it. And in the book, The Future of Christianity, he talks about the weakness of, of our faith today, the kind of the weakness that, that we know with which we have come to live. And then he discusses some of the possibilities of the future. He says in, in one paragraph, he says, the sharpest cleavage within Christendom now exists between those who give their major attention to the social gospel and those who emphasize the inner life of devotion. It doesn't take much wisdom to realize that this cleavage in the church today arises between those whose emphasis is the social gospel as opposed to those whose emphasis is the deepening of the spiritual life or the inner life of an individual. Then he makes this observation. He says the lesson of history is that if it is not the women, the social conscience requires steady nourishment in a deep, and as we survey the affairs of our own life, we are reminded again and again that the Spirit of Christ comes to us not through so many of the activities in which we are involved. The Spirit of Christ comes to us not as we observe the tradition. Meaningful as those traditions of religion. The Spirit of Christ comes through a personal surrender of ourselves to His Spirit and a willingness on our part to say, nevertheless, not my will, but thine. He looks for the sincerity of an individual, He looks for the surrender. You see, the only thing Jesus said to that man with the withered hand the same way. That's all in the world he said to him. He didn't say to him, go and dip your hand in the river Jordan as he had on other occasions. He didn't say to him, uh, let me uh, make a, a plaster out of mud and spittle as he had the only thing Jesus said to the man in the temple was stand up. And immediately the process of healing began. Not only for the man with the withered hand, but for the congregation and the whole. But you see, when, when Jesus said to the man, stand up, and the question began to rise among the people. Certain members of the congregation 
disavowed their obedience and went their way. Not all of them. Those who remain remain in obedience to the Spirit of God as revealed in the life of Christ. And it remains true for us today that the surest road to help within our own life, the most certain path for us to follow is through an obedience to the direction of Jesus. Simply to obey that Spirit of God that lives within our heart and within our soul and provides the direction we need for the problems of the people. The one question that looms more largely in my mind at this point than anything else is how do we How do we know what the Spirit of God is saying for us to do? How do we understand that Spirit? Well, I don't know whether I can answer that question for you or not. To your satisfaction. But I like to think that it comes as we attune ourselves through daily submission, through regular encounters with God. I like to think that the more we open ourselves to the Spirit of God, the more real the Spirit of God becomes. The more we on the Word of God, the Bible, the more we hear the Word of God in sanctuary, the more attuned we become to the Spirit of God within the everyday activity and affairs of our life. And as that still small voice speaks from within, we suddenly discover we're speaking the truth we need to hear and providing the guidance and direction that ultimately is going to make a difference in the kind of life we live, in the kind of person we are, and in the way in which we enjoy the message of our things. When we sincerely seek His help, when we totally surrender ourselves to His will and to His will and become obedient to the voice with which He speaks, then we find the healing we need and the joy of our faith which is promised to us through the message of Christ for the Holy Spirit. Jesus looked around and about and across us. And he looked for surrender. He looked for sincerity. He looked for surrender. He looked for obedience. The question is, what are we showing? 
life really and in the working with God. Help us, our Heavenly Father, in our own life this day to realize that we are in thy presence, led by thy Spirit, and promise deliverance from whatever infirmity or weakness or ailment we may possess as we accept the ministry of Christ.